0: Before Edison left, he had a suggestion. The best part of the California trip had been the drive from Los Angeles to San Diego, free from any demands but their own whims. While Edison didn't enjoy public appearances, he did savor time spent with friends away from the crushing daily concerns at work. Surely Ford and Firestone felt the same. Why not embark on future car trips, picking a general area and route, and then going along as they pleased? They could camp. Perhaps John Burroughs would come along and point out all sorts of interesting plant life and birds as had been the plan in 1914 during the aborted visit to the Everglades. Henry Ford was immediately in favor. And besides recreation, the trips would suit business purposes too. The three men were pragmatic enough to realize that they couldn't go anywhere, particularly as a group, without attracting constant notice. Their California adventures had just proven that newspapers couldn't get enough of Edison's and Ford's adventures. Everywhere else in the country, reporters would vie for an opportunity to write about local visits, and thanks to the recent development of wire services, their stories would appear in newspapers all over the U.S. Edison and Ford and Firestone gave themselves a nickname. They would be the Vagabonds, annually joining much of the rest of America exploring the country by car. What better way for such rich, famous men to demonstrate their kinship with ordinary Americans? We are really just like you. Their main goal was to have a good time, but few business magnates in America had a shrewder understanding of marketing than Edison, Ford, and Firestone. If rank and file consumers like what they saw and read about, as they surely would, then sales of cars and light bulbs and phonographs and tires would directly benefit too. All right, so that excerpt is explaining the why behind the book that I'm going to talk to you about today, which is The Vagabonds, the story of Henry Ford and Thomas Edison's 10-year road trip, and it was written by Jeff Gwynn. And real quick, just before I jump back into the book, sometimes I have like ideas about the podcast or new things I'm doing, um, and anytime that pops up, I'm just going to put them at the end of Uh, any particular episode so at the end at the very end of this podcast there's just some new updates and ideas i have so if you're interested make sure uh you you can listen to that at the very end let me go ahead and jump into the beginning of the book really a way to think about uh i would say the the author was just talking about how shrewd a marketer uh ford edison and and firestone were and i think ford's probably the 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 greatest of all marketers out of the, the three of them And you can really think of Henry Ford as like the original influencer. Uh, He would definitely do very well with social media. And so this is a little bit about that. It says Ford generally accepted the responsibilities of his celebrity. He worked diligently to cultivate it, realizing early on that his personal fame heightened demand for Model T's. Most summers for a decade, Henry Ford set out on auto trips, visiting remote towns and small communities. And you can think of these trips, which is what the entire book is about, not only as uh, vacation, uh, they get to hang out with friends. They don't get to normally see because everybody's busy, but it is primarily the reading of the book is I think the primary uh, reason more so than all that was the fact that it gave them uh, publicity for. For their business for their respective businesses but it's particularly with Henry Ford it shows what you can do with my product Hey look here's another reason you want to buy it in addition to the free publicity so it says on every uh, on every trip Ford was accompanied by friends sometimes other business magnets or else government officials including I think two presidents if I'm not mistaken uh, or one president and then they, they met another one uh, high-ranking Ford staff members. And high-ranking Ford staff members, his road companions always included the tire tycoon Harvey Firestone and the much-beloved inventor Thomas Edison. Edison was the only living America American whose fame rivaled Ford's own. So both Ford and Edison are obviously extremely uh, famous and well-known independently. Uh, they get together. Of course, the press and the, the general public are going are be curious of what they're uh, what they're going, uh, what they're up to. And that's the so this book is it goes in sequential order for from 1914 to 1924 when the trips end. Um, now throughout the book, they talk about obviously the trips they're taking, but then the author has a bunch of digressions and these little stories that give us insights into uh, the personality and business, uh, like what's going on in their businesses between. Firestone, Ford, and Edison. And that's most of what I'm going to focus on today. It's most of what I personally found uh, interesting. And this is about Henry Ford's one idea. And when I got to this section, it made me think of a quote I'm going to read it to you uh, from this book I covered all the way back on Founders number 118. It's written by Charles Sorensen, which was like Henry Ford's, like almost like right-hand man for 40 years. The name of the book is My 40 Years at Ford. And I'll get there in one second. And it's about this idea that I love. It's like you, Henry Ford had basically one idea. And the reason I love that is because you only really need one idea in life to become wildly successful and and, and build the life that you want. So it says, Henry Ford introduced a car that transformed American consumerism and travel. Previously, automobiles were exclusively for the rich, costing thousands of dollars for purchase and considerably more for upkeep. But Ford's Model T changed everything. Thanks in great part to Ford's innovative assembly line, Model Ts were mass produced on a previously unimaginable scale. In competitors for factories, it took workers several hours to assemble an individual car. At, Fo- at the Ford plant, a completed Model T rolled out the line every two and a half minutes. And so that was Henry Ford's one idea. It took him probably, what, two decades, close to two decades from having the idea to actually figuring out how to do the idea. And that's, hey, everybody, everybody else is building cars for rich people. I want to build a car so inexpensive that everybody can afford it. Um, And so that leads me to the quote. And that that paragraph just said, you know, thanks in part to Ford's innovative assembly line. So that's when I read that part, I was like, oh, that reminded me of what Charlie Sorensen said in 40 Years of Ford. And this is the quote. Henry Ford had no ideas on mass production. He wanted to build a lot of autos because that's the only way he could get to his one idea. Right. He was determined. But like everyone else at the time, he didn't know how. In later years, he was glorified as the originator of the mass production idea. Far from it, and this is the most important line in this entire paragraph, he just grew into it like the rest of us. And I just love that idea that you have, okay, I have, I have a goal, I have some, a dream, a product I want to build. I'm not sure yet. I know what I want to do, but I don't know how to do it. And so I know I'm going to have to experiment, I'm going to have to go through many trial and error, and, and usually a long period of time, but I'll eventually get there. And that is really the story of Henry Ford's One Idea. There's also something that popped in my mind when I when it, they start uh, when this author starts comparing Ford's uh, advantage once he's up and running to what his competitors. You know you guys are taking hours to do one car. I can do one every two and a half minutes. It reminded me of Andrew Carnegie. That's a very old idea. And Andrew Carnegie back in the 1800s was obsessed with investing in new technology. If there was a new machine, a new process that would help him produce steel more efficiently, uh, he would always invest in that. And usually uh, the old timers in his business would would criticize him for this. And so the way I would, I would summarize Andrew Carnegie's idea and how he applied this idea to his business is that you invest, in com- uh, you invest in technology, the savings compound, and sometimes that investment in technology is the difference between a profit and a loss. And so I think it was in his autobiography, he talks about, hey, if I didn't have these machines, if I didn't have the new process... Uh, some years that was the, the 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 efficiency I gained from investing in technology sometimes it was the year between me actually making a profit where the people that were criticizing me the people usually older gentlemen uh, they were in the business before me ha- actually had a loss because they they failed to invest in technology and I think Carnegie had a very important realization there that the, the, the you have to invest in te- technology because the it, the savings or said another way the advantages compound. And the fact that Ford spent so much time figuring out how to make a car as cheap as possible and as fast as possible, and I'm going to go into detail that in a minute, gave him a massive advantage. You can't compete with somebody. If it takes you five hours to make a car and he does in two and a half minutes, you're going to lose. Uh, Model Ts were also utilitarian. Fancy options that drove up the price were conspicuously absent. Ford passed on the savings to his customers. At the time of its introduction, the Model T sold for as little as half what other cars cost. From there, Ford continued tinkering with the manufacturing process, aggressively seeking uh, ways to cut production expenses and Model T prices even more. I can't remember because I've done what, like five, four books on, on Henry Ford. But in one of them, it said it got to the point where uh, he stopped advertising completely. Because the only advertising he would do was constantly lower the price of the Model T. When he lowered the price of the Model T, that was newsworthy. And then he'd get a bunch of free advertising because newspapers and radio and everybody else in the the country would pick up and let customers know, oh, my God, now that, you know, the the, uh, Model T used to be $550. There's a picture of, let me find it. There's a picture in this book of a Model T ad. And it says $295. I thought, if I remember correctly, and I don't, I'm not entirely sure, but I think he got that price down to like $250, if I'm not mistaken. So let's go back to the way he thinks about this and his obsession with eliminating waste and aiming for simplicity. Aiming for simplicity is a direct quote of his from his autobiography. He talked about it over and over again. Um, so it says he would find ways to cut production expenses and Model T prices even more. The be- oh, here it is. The best example fostered a popular joke that could, that you could buy any Model T that you liked as long as the color was black. Few realized that Ford insisted the cars come in that color because black paint dried quickest, meaning Model Ts could be whipped through the assembly line and off to dealerships at an even faster pace, saving additional time and labor-related dollars. And then the savings not only compounded for Ford, the company, but also the, the Ford customer. Model T savings for owners only commenced with the initial purchase. Since it was only 1,200 pounds, the Model T weighed half as much as their competitors. And the cost of body repairs, repairs and replacement tires was accordingly less. When Ford introduced the Model T, this is bananas. When Ford introduced the Model T, Americans owned approximately 194,000 cars. Six years later... That number increased to $2 So that's 10x in six years. Ford controlled almost half the automobile uh, market at that time. The Model T alone would have established Henry Ford as a household name, but he further cemented his reputation as a friend of the working man with a stunning announcement. In an era when factory line workers were lucky to earn $2 a day for their labor and they had to work 10-hour shifts six days a week, Ford pledged to pay $5 a day and reduced workdays to eight hours. Everyone in America was talking about it. And I think that's just another example of uh, Ford being gifted at at marketing, which is really surprising that he was so good at marketing when you realized he was very much a loner, very much a part of, soci- uh, uh, a part of society, um, not in society, I guess is what I'm trying to say there. And a very strange person, which I'll get in like on an individual level, very, very bizarre person. Uh, as far as learning, if you want to learn how to build, I think from like setting Henry Ford, uh, at least this is my interpretation of reading a bunch of books on him, uh, very gifted, very few people in history that, that you that you could study, that could tell you more about uh, building uh, building companies. He had a lot of good ideas, but also one of the strangest, just I, I, don't, I wouldn't want to be his friend is what I'm telling you, and I'll go into more detail on that. Uh, there's other examples in the book too where it's just like he's just a bizarre person. Let me go into more of like the origination of Ford idolized Edison. They wanted to become best friends even though they were Edison was a good deal older than him. And this is the origination of that. This is what I'm about to read to you happened in 1896. Uh, and think about how crazy it is. The Model T comes 12 years later. So it's just a reminder not to quit. Over the years, as Ford founded and failed with two auto manufacturing companies before succeeding with his third, he endlessly reminisced about the meeting and Edison's words of encouragement. Uh, he's working for Edison at the time. He's introduced to Edison because somebody that knows Edison says, hey, this Ford guy, has a way to, to make an internal combustion engine a reminder that most cars at this time were either steam powered, which didn't work well at all, or electric, which also didn't work well at all. Uh, and so Edison says, young man, that's the thing. You have it. Keep at it. Ford's admiration for Edison blossomed into virtual worship as a result. Throughout his own, uh, throughout his own business successes, as his hard work and belief in himself cultivated with the Model T, Ford warmed himself with memories of that encounter with his hero. And one thing that's also surprising when you analyze their careers is Ford was much much wealthier. Ford was a cannier businessman than his hero, and much wealthier. Part of this is because Ford also didn't need to invent his market; he only needed to expand him, expand them. And I want to also say Ford stuck with what he was working on, the whole thing. And there's examples later in the book where just Edison jumps around too much. So he had a very hard. He he had a lot of uh, great inventions, a lot of contributions to uh, to humanity in general, but he had a hard time capturing that value. Uh, more on their friendships and, I guess, why they, why they were able to be friends and what they had in common. Edison had few close friends. He always suspected that anyone seeking friendship had ulterior motives. But Ford was already far richer than Edison and almost as famous. There were other things in common. They found themselves in complete agreement about the evils of Wall Street and the crass men there who cared only for profit and not for the public. Both were poor boys who had made good. Neither had a college degree. And both were disdainful of those who believed classroom education was superior to hands-on work experience and common sense. Like Edison, Ford did not have many friends. Ford was a prickly man and also a complicated one. That's an understatement. Burning to make the world better for humanity as a whole while not enjoying personal contact with most individuals. Edison being a notable exception to that. Ford said, I think Mr. Edison is the greatest man in the world. So the fourth member of the Vagabonds is John Burroughs, the author and naturalist. And it was a little surprising that he could develop such a close relationship with Henry Ford, given that he criticized cars. That he didn't want people uh, like polluting nature. Um, and it, so this is really on how they were able to become friends. And then you see also see, you know, the complicated nature of Ford. Uh, he did not believe in charity, but with his friends, he was unbelievably generous. So it says Ford never doubted his own. And this is more about his personality, too. This is repeated over and over again in every book. That you'll read on Henry Ford. He never doubted his own beliefs and decisions. forbid He forbid disagreement from employees and would ignore any outsiders. Ford's hobby was work. He devoted almost every waking minute to it. But Ford loved birds all of his life, and would, whenever possible, set a time set aside time to observe them. So Burroughs is a, an expert on the study of birds and nature in general. Ford sent a message to America. If old fat, uh, so, he went up giving. Uh, Burroughs uh, Model T. He did this on several occasions and then would also publicize that. So it's another form of advertising if you think about that. And so I would say with almost everything he has ulterior motives. Um, So it says Ford sent a message to America. If old-fashioned John Burroughs loved to ride in them, how much more might younger, more progressive individuals savor the kind of outdoor adventures made possible by car ownership? As for Burroughs, he learned years earlier uh, during his tramps with Teddy Roosevelt that having a famous patron greatly expanded his audiences for books and public lectures. So he's doing the exact same thing with his relationship with Ford, that Ford, Firestone, and Edison are doing uh, on, on the, this year of vagabonding these auto trips throughout, uh, throughout America. There was more. Burroughs confided to Ford that he feared losing his family farm, where he was raised. Relatives living there struggled to meet the hefty mortgage payments. Ford bought the property outright and deeded it to Burroughs. Ford's generosity towards his few close friends was boundless. And it's really hard to understand the the scope of Henry Ford's wealth. He owns 100, I think by the year 1919, if I'm not mistaken, he owns 100% of the Ford uh, Motor Company. I think it would be valued at like $500 million in 1919 dollars. It's just outrageous. This is more about the benefit of being around great people, how they will inspire you. This reminds me, though, so... Uh, Ford is able to do this in person, so very few people are going to be able to make rela- uh, relationships with somebody as influential as Thomas Edison. It reminded me of this this uh, podcast I saw a long time ago with with Elon Musk, where he talked about you know he sought he didn't have any many mentors in life. This is when he was in his early 20s, so he sought mentors in a historical context, and he did that by reading biographies. And so being around Thomas Edison greatly inspired. Ford, just like reading about great people, inspires me and you. So it says, Ford twice came close to selling the business. This is the actual successful Ford Motor Company, the third one. It was as though Ford believed he achieved what he could. Edison al- But Edison always sought the next great thing, and failures like mining innovation and concrete housing didn't deter him. He never lost belief in himself. When he and the inventor quickly became the closest of friends, Ford felt energized again, thanks in great part to Edison's inspiration. For all of Ford's professional life, he had to overcome skepticism from other successful men. He had always been the outsider, the one with crazy ideas and clumsy social graces. Edison sympathized, because in the earliest years of prominence, he was criticized for some of the same traits. The inventor not only accepted Ford for the rough edges, rough-edged rough men that he was, he recognized in him the fine qualities that offset the carmaker's obvious flaws. Ford was aware that Edison was one of the very few people who genuinely liked him and he was profoundly grateful for it. So this is Henry Ford on experts and why he felt that way. And I'm going to bring this... I, there's so many examples in this book that I'm going to point out to you because I think it's really important. Like this fundamental belief in his his own ability, never doubting himself. These are all very, very positive traits, especially in the, when everybody else from the outside is telling you, no, you're wrong, you're wrong, internal combustion engine is not going to work, you can't, you have to build cars for rich people. All the stuff they told Henry Ford that wound up, he was right about and they were wrong. It just took a lot of time and determination to to for to, for that to play out, to realize that he's right. The problem is... That trait never left him, even when the circumstances changed. So later on, when people after, I think he sells like 15 million Model Ts, people are realizing, okay, now a lot more people have car ownership. Now we want choices. And this is we covered this uh, back. It was in the early 100s, somewhere in those episodes where I did, I think it was like a 10 or 12 part series on all these early automobile uh, founders, the people that actually built the car industry in America. And so, what we saw there was Alfred Sloan, Billy Durant, people like that, uh, Walter Chrysler. They took advantage of the gap that Henry Ford left because he never, he he just thought, okay, I'm going to make the Model T forever. I've already figured this out. I don't have to change. Um, So, again, it's just really hard. There's no, this is not black or white. It's just so hard to realize when self belief is valuable, like uh, relentless self belief is valuable and when it's actually a liability. Uh, Henry Henry Ford was always a man of strong opinions and one who absolutely trusted his own instincts. He especially disdained anyone identified as an expert. Quote from him, if I ever wanted to kill opposition by unfair means, I would endow the opposition with experts. No one ever considers himself an expert if he really knows his job. Now, he's probably right about that. He's essentially saying there's always more to learn. When prominent, better-educated men and their hired experts insisted that the future of the automobile market was limited to manufacturing expensive cars for the wealthy, Ford believed that the real potential lay in sales of a modest but dependable vehicle to the growing American middle class. So he was right about that at the beginning. There would be less profit in individual transactions, but the sheer number of sales would yield greater cumulative returns. Ford was proved right, and he reveled in it. So he has this wild success, but then it went to his head. His e- this is really the dangers of an unchecked ego, because then he thinks, OK, I did this myself. I'm the reason that the company's successful. And a lot of people make the argument that Ford would have never been successful without his the person that was running the company with him, James Cousins, which I'll go into right here. But again, sec- the reminder, the dangers of an unchecked ego. Uh, their relationship nearly approximated one of equals until the Model T established inarguable market dominance, and then Ford began gradually to resent Cousins as only a glorified bookkeeper. The failing was mutual. Cousins believed that Ford became so convinced of his own brilliance that he forgot others also made critical contributions to his company's success. Ford felt encouraged to offer his opinion on all sorts of non car related subjects and had no doubt about his sagacity regarding everything else. So I'm going to define that term. I had to look it up myself. I've seen it before. Couldn't remember what it, what it uh, meant. So in case this might be helpful to you. So that means the ability to make good judgments. So let's go over that. Ford felt encouraged to offer his opinions on all sorts of non-car related subjects. And this is the dumbest thing he ever did uh, and had no d- a doubt about his ability to make good judgments regarding everything else. And so he starts publishing essentially like a a newsletter about a lot of his anti-Semitism. He railed on this this global Jewish uh, worldwide conspiracy that he was convinced of. Started talking about politics and war and all other stuff. And so Cousins says, what are you doing? Cousins confronted him, insisting that the owner's personal politics had no place in an internal company publication. Ford disagreed. It was his company. Cousins quit the next day. He went on to a distinguished political career, first as mayor of Detroit and later as U.S. senator. But with Cousins gone, so was the only check on Ford's increasing proclivity to say exactly what he pleased and damn the consequences. And this is he winds up. It's not so he starts doing this with an internal uh, company uh, publication, right? And then he starts he buys his own newspaper and he spends, I think. He loses like five million dollars over like eight years trying to to make this company or this this newspaper successful, and it was just full of just just bizarre. I mean, here's a problem when I say like let's study Henry Ford for his great ideas about building companies and nothing else, because this guy winds up being one of the few people, one of the few Americans, he gets awarded, and this is not something you want, not an award or distinction you want. He, he's one of the few Americans that is awarded, uh, this made up award. I forgot what it's count, uh, what it, what it's called. But it's a made-up award by Adolf Hitler, and if I'm not mistaken, in Mein Kampf, Hitler talks about how great a man Ford was because they shared these same like this this hatred for Jews and this convinced they were both convinced that uh, Jewish control of banking and and money supply was they, they were essentially there's a secret cabal of Jews running the world, and Henry Ford would print this in his newspaper. The examples in this book are just crazy. Uh, this is why the demand for an inexpensive car would skyrocket if you could make one that's reliable and cheap, which is the, the wave that Henry Ford rode. The average American rarely ventured more than 12 miles from home because that was the distance a horse and wagon could comfortably cover from there and back in a day. So in the year 1918, they decide, because they do different routes every year, they're like, okay, we're going to go down to the south. We're going to try to publicize and, and, and get... More interest and more people buying Ford cars in the South. I'm only going to read one section here. This blew my mind. Uh, Resentment over the Civil War still lingered in both the North and South. So they're making the point that a lot of people would do, especially as the years progressed, people might drive from like New York. You could go to New York from San Francisco on on, like a very primitive highway. But very few people tend, tend to go from like New York to Atlanta. And this is part of the reason why. Resentment over the Civil War still lingered in both the North and the South. That conflict, this just blew my mind, that conflict had concluded only 53 years earlier. Edison was a teenager when the first shots were fired. And Ford was born a few weeks after the Battle of Gettysburg. So right now in this 1918 trip, they're as close to the Civil War as we are to the year 1970. So on these trips, a lot of times the cars would break down. That's why so – like at the very beginning when they start vagabonding, a lot less people do it. As the cars become more more reliable, more people do it. And one thing to admire about Henry Ford is he, he would do a lot of the work himself. In one example, he gives like this poor farmer a Model T. says, hey, you can park the Model T in the barn. They try to put the Model T in the barn. It doesn't fit. So Ford and another guy, they went up spending hours uh, – extending the entrance to the barn, doing all the work themselves. And so this is another example. They break down and they bring it to a mechanic. They're somewhere out in in the South. And the mechanics are like, oh, this is, you know, I can't fix this. And Henry, it's essentially Henry, I'll do it myself, Ford. Uh, The mechanics in town pronounced the damage was unrepairable. A replacement fan would have to be sent for. Considerable Considerable delay was inevitable. Certainly a day at least. Ford listened to the mechanics, then asked if he could borrow some of their tools. Using his own knife and their soldering, soldering iron, he poked holes in the broken bits of the fan, stitched them together with thin wire, then soldered, soldered the wires in place. The punctured point of the radiator was also soldered tight. The ignition was switched on and the Packard ran perfectly. Ford's repair work took two hours. And so we see two things there. Four, again, Henry, I'll do it myself, Ford, but also he just doesn't. He, he wants to figure, and that's a, a positive trait. He wants to figure things out for himself. Mechanics said it's impossible. It's going to be at least a day. Ford's like, yeah, I think I can do it. And he went up doing it. Uh, let, me, there's a little, let me give you a little summary of Harvey Firestone. Um, I might read his autobiography too, because he, he winds up building a, a massively successful company. And this is like a brief overview of how that happened. By 1918, Harvey Firestone uh, was a businessman of considerable national stature. Um, He was very much self-made. Firestone left the family farm to work as a bookkeeper for a coal company. He was a salesman for questionable health-related aids, and finally a dealer in horse-drawn carriages. In the mid-1890s, Firestone wrote in his memoir, For the first time it struck me that my future was right there on the wheels of my buggy. You, using his meager savings as a startup money, Firestone eventually established a company manufacturing rubber tires for automobiles. He realized that the solid rubber wheels utilized on early cars would not hold up sufficiently on the country's rough roads. And this is this is how you know there's an opportunity for a better product, right? Rich men bought the earliest American cars and they universally hired an assistant who not only served as a chauffeur, but provided the muscle necessary for frequent tire changing. And this is fascinating. Like, you know, the product is so bad that you have to hire somebody to replace the tires over and over again. There's obvious room for improvement here. Um, and that reminded me, Paul Graham has a series of essays on his website, paulgram.com, that are fantastic. One of them is this, this, this essay called Schlepp Blindness. And when I got to this section of the book, it made me think of what I remembered from reading Paul Graham's essay on Schlepp Blindness. I just want to pull out a couple... Um, a couple quotes from that essay, if you don't mind. So let's define this. There are great startup ideas lying around unexploited right under our noses, which is what Firestone discovered. Right. But he discovered that. Let's see. What is that? 130 years before Paul Graham's writing the same thing. One reason we, we don't see them is the, is a phenomenon I call schlep blindness. Schlep means a tedious, unpleasant task. Uh, the most dangerous thing about our dislike of schleps, our unpleasant tasks, is that much of it is unconscious. Your un- this is not the entire essay. This is just a few paragraphs from it. Obviously, um, your unconscious won't even let you see ideas that involve painful schleps. You just assume, assume that's the way things are. That's schlep, schlep blindness. I'm most likely destroying the the pronunciation of that, by the way. But I want to bring this one. just one more paragraph here because I think it applies to. Uh, one of the most fascinating modern companies. And he says, the most striking example I know of schlep blindness is Stripe, or rather, Stripe's idea. For over a decade, every hacker who had ever had to process payments online knew how painful the experience was. Thousands of people must have known about this problem. It's just like thousands of people must have known about Harvey Firestone's problem, right? The problem that his product's going to solve, rather. Uh, thousands of people must have known about this problem. And yet when they started startups, they decided to build recipe sites or aggregators for local events. Why? Why work on problems few care about, care much about and no one will pay for when you could fix one of the most important components of the world's infrastructure, which is what Stripe did, right? Because slept blindness prevented people from even considering the idea of fixing payments—that is exactly what is happening in the story of Firestone. People didn't even think, "Hey, instead of inventing a better tire, let me hire a guy that has to fix, that has to drive me around, around, and for the inevitable tire failures—these, these, whether they're flat or they explode—he's going to have the muscle to to change the tire for me." I just think that's another example of human nature not changing. Firestone envisioned better, longer lasting tires. Due to tra- extended trial and error, he developed a new tire uh, that had better tread uh, and better traction on roads of all kind. Though Firestone now had a superior product, he lacked the means of making tires widely known to potential customers. He had no, adver- no money for advertising and no distribution. Firestone, this is another thing. So the tires, Firestone tires would only fit Firestone rims. Uh, We were ready to go to market, but there was no market to go on. In 1905, Firestone had heard that Henry Ford planned to manufacture a fleet of 2,000 cars that would sell for an unheard of $500 each. So that gave him an idea. If I could induce Ford to put these cars with our rims, then we would have 2,000 customers who had to use our tires to the exclusion of all others. Firestone met with Ford, who agreed to test his tires. He, Ford found them preferable both on their, for their road performance and their price. Firestone offered them to Ford at $55 a set, compared to $70 charged by his competitors. Firestone borrowed frantically to finance production of the, for the huge order. In 1908, when Ford began producing Model Ts by the tens, then hundreds of thousands, he remained loyal to the manufacturer, who had earlier sold him quality tires at a reasonable price. Firestone tires became one of the best-selling brands on the market, and Firestone's fortune was made. And in addition to that, they also had a lot of. They shared a lot of the same business philosophy. Uh, They shared several business philosophies. They disdained planned obsolescence, believing customer loyalty was best retained by providing reasonably priced commodities that could be depended upon to last a long time. Ford and Firestone were mutually convinced that the most work-efficient employees were those who felt they had a true stake in the company's success so they paid higher wages, as well as offering various forms of profit sharing. In particular, both believed that companies could be efficiently run by only one man, whose orders must be carried out by efficient subordinates. And now we reach reached an example of what I mentioned earlier, that Ford's great to listen to about company building, but he was an absolute weirdo who wanted to control the behavior of all those around him. Uh, the carmaker had strong opinions about diet and nutrition, abhorring manufactured sweets in particular. Edison had asked Harvey Firestone Jr. to fetch him a pop from the general store. Ford loathed sugary soft drinks, but couldn't bring himself to criticize his idols indulgence on one. He still seethed and he's mad about this for a few hours. And a few hours later, when Harvey, Fire, Jr., Harvey Firestone Jr. Uh, purchased Burroughs some caramels from another shop, which was, was Burroughs' favorite kind of candy, Ford couldn't restrain himself. Harvey Firestone Jr. was poisoning John Burroughs. Ford stern, stormed over, snatched the box of, of caramels out of the young man's hands, and flung it on the street. Okay, so there's another section I found interesting. This is how Ford came to own 100% of the Ford Motor Company. Uh, Ford was determined to be the sole controlling voice of Ford Motor Company. He owned 58.5% of the company. For many years, he resented the ha- the half dozen or so fellow stockholders whose views sometimes conflicted with his own. He was definitely a dictator, right? Especially when two brothers, John and Horace Dodge, I've also done a uh, podcast on them as well. It's an archive, I think uh, 115. So I, I don't exa- remember the exact number, but they were wild people. They're really fun to actually read about. <laughs> they're, they're crazy. And unfortunately, he went up dying in the, the flu epidemic uh in 1919 maybe 1920 i forgot when it was but they died relatively young unfortunately they were wild though they were probably destined to die young um when two brothers john and horace dodge successfully sued him for putting too large a share of profits into the company rather than paying appropriate dividends to 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 shareholders ford shocked america by resigning as company president he said he was going to start an entirely new automobile manufacturing enterprise The Ford Motor Company stockholders assumed the threat was real and within weeks agreed to sell Ford their shares at a whopping $12,500 a share. James Cousins, who was his alter ego and the person that quit, knew Ford best, held out and received $13,000 for each of his shares. Though Ford had to borrow $60 million of the near $106 million total cost, he was glad to do it. It had been an elaborate bluff, but he was now in complete control of the Ford Motor Company. So we see his faith, his unrelenting faith in himself, and that bluff worked out. This is an example where his delusional optimism didn't work out. Uh, This is when he starts his newspaper. Ford had his own newspaper, and he put the Dearborn Independent to work on his behalf. Ford and the editors he'd hired realized they, they must completely refurbish the Independence editorial and art content if it was to attain the kind of circulation necessary to equal and eventually surpass Ford. Uh, so it says Ford never aim low. This is what I mean about being delusional. So it's like, OK, we need a new editorial, and new art content because our circulation is going to pass that of nationally influential papers like The New York Times. That obviously never happens. He winds up either closing or selling the paper, I want to say eight years later, and I know he lost at least $5 million on, on doing this. And this is the paper he was publishing, like these, these exposés on, you know, this Jewish global conspiracy. And just, he was obviously very anti-war and just, his basically a newspaper that just espoused his, per, his personal opinions. And the only way that circulation would grow is because he made dealerships, four dealerships give subscriptions to everybody that bought a model T. So I don't know if he forgot about that, but he, he later on he's like, Oh look, it's circulation is growing and then I forgot what it was. It was like just a small percentage points of let's say five percent, for example, of circulation growth was people that actually bought the paper on their own and, and wasn't just given a subscription with their purchase of a model T. So again, just you can be good at one thing and that's great because you only have to be good at one thing. But some you know, knowing I guess it goes back to Buffett's and Munger's idea of your circle of competence. If you don't know where that ends, it could be very dangerous. Uh, also in the book, he winds up fighting and, and suing. And this is where, you know, he winds up being correct because he felt this, I think it was the Chicago Tribune libeled him. So he winds up fighting this case for many, many years. The, the, the judge, uh, the jury winds up ruling in his favor, but didn't award him any damages. Um, so this is... Yeah, let me just read my note to you. I'm going to read my note to you before I read this section. So Ford testified and didn't know trivia like the date of the American Revolution or the definition of the word Bollyhoo. Who cares? A business is just an idea that makes someone else's life better. That's Richard Branson's quote. Still the best description of why there's unlimited opportunity because if you look at, hey, a business is just an idea that makes someone's life better, that means there's unlimited opportunity for us to pursue, right? Ford served others, uh, which is one thing I learned from – one of the most valuable things I learned from Henry Ford is the fact that a business is just service. You're just in service of others, and, um, and so you never lose focus of that. And then finally, you only have to be good at one thing. That is Paul Orfala, which uh, was the founder of Kinko's I covered a few weeks ago, maybe a month or two ago by now. Um, and his realization that, Hey, wait a minute in school, they told me how to be good at everything. I have to be good at gym class. I have to know physics. I have to study economics. I have to be good at math. I have to study history and reading and writing. And he's like, but in life, you only have to be good at one thing. And he's like, I don't know how copy machines work, but I know I can sell what comes out of them. And he built a fabulously successful life, just being good at that one thing. And then, uh, my, my own, this is I, I'm taking credit for this idea. I undoubtedly learned it from somebody else. I hope this isn't somebody else's quote, but it might be. Never underestimate human's ability to focus on the inconsequential. All right, so that's a long note. Let me read the section. The case went to the jury. Their verdict was announced in Ford's favor. The tribune, the tribune had libeled him. Uh, he wanted a million dollars in damages. They gave him six cents. Both sides claimed vindication. It was the unanimous conclusion of most major publications on both coasts and in big cities throughout the U.S. that Ford had been humiliated it might never recover in public opinion. That's not true. The New York Times compared Ford's witness stand quizzing to a history test in school, and he did not receive a passing degree. But customers don't care if he knows. This is the point that I was trying to make. Customers don't care if he knows if he doesn't know the date of the American Revolution or the definition of the word ballyhoo. He built a car that I can afford and that is reliable. That's all they're going to care about. They have they have their own lives to worry about. The San Jose Mercury Herald predicted that the future mention of Ford will be will be accompanied by laughter and ridicule. Uh, Ford received, now here's, so that's the their response from the media, right? But here's what is the average person in America. Ford received thousands of letters with the general message that if he were an anarchist, that was part of what happened in the trial, then America needed more of them. Ford was the son of a Michigan farmer, and like most Americans of the time, his formal education was limited to a few years in local schools and teachers who themselves had not graduated high school. Then he had to leave school to make a living. Like Ford, many of his countrymen read only with difficulty, if at all. Their understanding of American history was limited. They too might not remember the exact date of the American Revolution, and this is the most important part, but they knew Henry Ford introduced the $5 workday and a car that ordinary people could afford. They identified with Ford so strongly that newspapers' attacks on him were taken as an insult directed at them. And that whole section really is, to me, just a, a reminder. I think that's one of the greatest ideas I've ever come across, or greatest realizations, greatest facts of life, whatever you want to call it. The fact that you just have to be good at one thing. If you were serving other humans and you're good at that one thing, it could be making a pizza making a car, inventing the light bulb, making tires. It doesn't matter what it is. You can build a fantastically successful and independent life. That's super motivating for me. So this is the cost of losing focused. Uh, this is on Thomas Edison. I saw, I, think, I want to say this is a tweet. I, don't, I, I looked for it, couldn't find it. But um, a long time ago, the way I remember it is somebody's mentor died. And they they, they were honoring their their mentor that died and said, hey, the, the biggest advice this guy gave me was you know several decades older than me. And he said, like, rabbit eye kid, quit jumping, focus, like stop jumping from idea to idea and just focus. And it's great advice. And we see Thomas Edison didn't uh, didn't do that. I mean, you got to that's what you want to do. You, you got to do it and just deal with the fact that you're not going to be as successful as you could be if you just focus on one thing. But Edison, is to me, is just what I learned from studying him is he's just jumped around too much. Time and again, he invented things with long-term market appeal only to lose interest or miscalculate what form of his inventions consumers wanted to buy. Examples were plentiful. Edison invented the phonograph, and his company was first to bring it to stores. But for nearly a decade after that, he focused on other projects while competitors built and marketed their own phonographs. So that's just a way to replay recorded audio, mostly music. He thought, if you read that book, The Wizard of Menlo Park, I think it was Founders Number 3, something like that. It's one of the first books I did. It was really funny because he's like, I'm going to invent this. And then what people are going to do is they're going to use it. You know, if like people have wine cellars at their house, he thought they were going to have a collection of audio sermons, like preachers. And they would just have like a room in their house that had, you know, maybe, I don't know, 100, like you'd have a hundred bottles of wine, you'd have a hundred different sermons. He's way off by that. But it was a fundamentally important invention if he just stuck with it. It's like it's like inventing the iPhone. Like, yeah, I'm going to work on something else. Uh, their own phonographs over time developing de- depriving the originator of what it could have been an Edison-dominated business. Edison not only invented the incandescent bulb, he created the most efficient generator systems to light them. Edison's company was poised to power every major... America, it's re- remarkable. This came from one person. Edison's company was poised to power every major city. And by 1919, almost half the households in America had electricity. But Edison didn't financially benefit. Years earlier, he sold his interests to competitors, and they eventually formed General Electric. So GE, rather than Edison, raked in the substantial profits. And this is another thing uh, Peter Thiel in his book Zero to One talks about. It. He's like, it's not just enough to, 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 to generate or to produce value. You've got to capture that. To some of the, You've got to f- find a system to capture some of the value that you're giving to consumers. This is a, a great illustration that Edison failed to do that. He created an unbelievable amount of value for humanity. He captured a, the tiniest, tiniest. I mean, he's not poor. We're not, we're not going to, you know, we're not... Um, we're not gonna feel sorry for the guy, but he could it's just a he could have done a better job. They eventually formed General Electric and GE, rather than Edison raked in substantial profits. Edison's company films, so he invented you could think of almost like the early movies, right? Edison Company films were a huge hit during the early year the early years of motion pictures. They were two reelers. The longest was 25 minutes. But moviegoers soon wanted longer films, and four reelers became the norm. Edison, though, liked 2 reelers better and wouldn't produce anything longer. Ticket sales for his films declined, and by 1918, he sold off all his film interests. The same was substantially true for recorded music. For years, Edison's recording dominated, but Americans began enjoying jazz and wanted those records. Edison hated jazz. He insisted that his company release only recordings of more traditional music, uh, like symphonies and operas, that he personally preferred. Predictably, competitors' recordings soon outsold Edison's, and by 1929, Edison's companies no longer produced entertainment records. Edison's vagabond friends lamented his business judgment. Ford said, Edison is easily the world's greatest scientist. I am not sure that he is also not the world's worst businessman. He knows nothing of business." Firestone agreed Mr. Edison thinks almost wholly creatively and does not give the same thought to commerce that he gives to creation. And the point that Ford and Firestone are making, the one Edison missed, is that you have to do both. You have to create something valuable and then capture that value. All right, so moving on. Uh, There's a lot of of times when I'm reading this to try to put myself in the shoes of the people involved in the story. And something I talk to you about over and over again is the fact that you want to analyze things by like, what side of the transaction do I want to be on? And one of the main themes on the history of entrepreneurship is the importance of control, that if something is important to your business, you want you don't want to be just relying on the good graces of other humans. Right. You want to control that decision. And so this is we're going to see what Henry Ford did to avoid borrowing money from banks during an economic downturn. And it clearly sees like, yes, some people can become wealthy and they still do to this day um, owning car dealerships. But in this case, Ford has all of Henry Ford had all the power. And so it says, Ford dealers had a strict financial arrangement with their parent company. When they ordered cars, they paid for them in advance rather than as they sold. The premise was that that with their money at stake rather than the companies, they would work even harder to sell the cars. Okay, so they have got to pay for them in advance. They're not, you can't give me the money when you sell the car, right? Since the Model T was, in cons- was constantly in high demand, there was no hardship for the dealers. They considered themselves lucky to be affiliated with Ford. But the 1920 economic slump left Ford dealers anxious to move the cars they had on hand and reluctant to order more. So they were shocked when they started to receive shipments of Model T's that they hadn't ordered. The edict, which is coming from Henry Ford, on these cars were the same. Ford Motor Company must be paid for them. refusal to do so would terminate the dealer-company relationships. If they refuse to accept these additional Model Ts, they were going to be fired by Ford and they could be ruined. Or as the parent company suggested, they could accept the cars and if necessary, get loans from their banks to pay Ford for them. See what he did? To, so he doesn't want to borrow. He's going to make you borrow and then aggressively keep trying to sell Model Ts and hang on until the national economic crisis was over. The dealers had little choice to, but to accept that provided Ford with enough money to meet his immediate corporate debts. And the dealers had to risk wrath from their banks instead. And then as they go, so the the book goes in chronological order. Uh, every chapter is based on a year and about the trip they're taking, but also they have like these, these flashbacks. And so this is a flashback about what, what was, what was Henry Ford doing when he was in his twenties, which I always love studying um, in August 19 in August 1923. Um, Henry and Clauda Ford had been married for 35 years. When they met at a country dance in 1886, Ford was 23 and Clauda was 20. He was farming and he hated it. So they wound up getting married. The Fords moved to Detroit. Ford took an engineering job at Edison Illuminating Company. Uh, his wife never complained when Ford spent most of his off the, hour, off the job hours trying to build a combustible en- combustible engine in their kitchen. It's remarkable. Uh, she encouraged Ford to pursue his dream of creating a car for the great multitudes, remaining supportive when his first two companies failed, and encouraging him during the the difficult first years of the Ford Motor Company, his third company. She forgave his obsession with work, accepted his constant certainty that whatever he thought had to be right, and, eat, and I, got, I came across this point. This surprised me. I don't know if I've ever... Maybe I read it before and I forgot, but and then even overlooked his extended affair with an employee that resulted in a child out of wedlock. I don't remember him having a child out of wedlock. It's wild. And then in return, Ford didn't listen to anyone. If uh, excuse me, if Ford listened to anyone other than himself, it was his wife. She convinces him later on not to uh, not to run for president, um, which he wanted. I think he was going to run like 1924, something like that. But uh, that that statement seems to be accurate, that he listened to very few people. But he did seek the counsel and listen to, to her influence. And a part, part of that is because he believed that she, she was actually one of the few people that actually held, uh, wanted what was best for him. And just a bunch of one sentence descriptions of more Henry Ford traits spread out through some pages, over a few pages. Patience was never Ford's strength. Ford had no interest in laurel resting. Ford fixated on even the smallest details, and then a sentence about the, uh, the friendship between Ford and Edison. A primary, if unspoken rule in the close friendship with Ford was that neither, him or Edison, would burden the other with admissions of uncertainty or weakness. They were both extremely, extremely proud men. They're not going to admit to other people any kind of uncertainty, doubts, weaknesses, or anything like that. Um, this is another reminder that products have the personality traits of their creators, of their founders. The Model T was a car built to last. It was never flashy, in every way efficient, always dependable, much like the man whose company assembled them. And just as Ford never saw any reason to change, the, to, to change himself, he felt no pressure to change the Model T. So that's why we have this, what we talked about earlier, this self-belief that I'm, I'm right and you're wrong. At the beginning of his career served him really well, we start to see that falls apart. We, I did this three-part series embedded in that other series from the early Automobile Pioneers. I did a three-part series on Billy Durant and Alfred Sloan. Billy Durant, one of the most important people. Uh, I would say him and Ford are the most important people. Maybe Henry Leland, too, because he was so influential and a generation older than these guys. But the most important people at the very beginning, this foundation of what becomes this gigantic industry, right? And so Billy Durant is... He was the founder of GM the idea person he had the vision and then it took Alfred Sloan the professional CEO to come in and actually apply the vision and that in this book it talks a little bit about that gap that I mentioned earlier that Ford left his competitors and that GM drove right through Ford's stubbornness gave competitors the opening they needed when Alfred Sloan took over General Motors in 1923 the new boss emphasized a marketing plan based on Americans wanting not just transportation but selection and that's what Billy Durant knew that way before Sloan did and that's why he was buying up, he wound up, you know, doing all these financial shenanigans of buying up all these different uh, car manufacturers that serve different needs. It was a completely almost it was the opposite strategy that Ford pursued. Right. Uh, enough people now own cars so that ownership itself. Oh Wait, let me let me read that out again. Uh, new boss emphasized a marketing plan based on Americans wanting not just transportation, but selection. Enough people now own cars. So that ownership itself was no longer special. What was going to matter soon was driving a car that reflected their personality, the specialness of the individual owner. And this applies to much more than just like a lot of people buy products because not solely for the, the benefit of the product, but what that product says about them to other people. The Model T was no longer the near-exclusive vehicle for auto campers. So auto camping is what vagabonding was. You you get in the car, you get in your Model T, you pack it full of ca- camping gear, you drive out, and then when you when when it gets dark, because you can't really drive at night at this time in, in history, you camp out in the wilderness, on farmland, whatever the case is, right? So that's what they started doing. What happened is as more people started owning cars and cars got better, uh, they didn't want to camp anymore. They wanted to have start. They wanted to have sleep in an actual bed. So entrepreneurs start opening motels and restaurants and places to service all these Americans that are now hitting the road, which is what the vagabonds were trying to popularize. Right. And it wind up growing into something bigger than, than they ever uh, anticipated. Uh, this con- contributed to a turn in the gradual demise of auto camps. Uh, and the emergence of motels. After buying an attractive Chevy to drive in, few wanted to clutter their flashy image by cramming the car full of bulking camping gear. They wanted to stay in places that included some kind of convenient parking, and what the market demanded, savvy entrepreneurs were pleased to make available. Henry Ford acknowledged none of this. And so the last trip was in 1924. This is also when Edison's getting older. He can't keep going on these trips anymore. Ford's business he starts to lose market share. He eventually does he he creates a new Model A and then eventually adapts uh GM's strategy that they pioneered and he'll start doing multiple models that change. He did not want to do that and that's kind of the end of this complete dominance. Obviously Ford's around today, still really successful, but it, you know, when in the Model T's day, he dominated the entire industry. So that starts to slip. So this is the end of the vagabonds and I'll close here. The Vagabond summer car trips ended for good on August 28, 1924. At the time, Ford and Firestone didn't realize it, but Edison probably did. A year later, Firestone called on Edison in New Jersey to tell the inventor that it was time to plan the Vagabond's 1925 outing. The 78-year-old Edison responded that he didn't believe he could this year. The inventor cited mild stomach ailments and concerns about the sales, the sales end of his business. And while there was still considerable interest in Ford and Edison as individuals, widespread public appeal of their summer trips with Firestone had run its course. A contributing factor to the end of the trips wasn't the vagabonds' expectation of too much attention being paid to them, but too little attention. Which is why I mentioned earlier, I think there was ulterior motives, like it was primary a business trip, at least it appears to me. The vagabonds are remembered to this day. Nearly 14 decades after Edison invented incandescent bulbs and the power grid systems to efficiently and economically light them, Thomas Edison remains one of the most iconic and beloved figures in American history. Henry Ford's legacy is more complicated, but the Model T still reigns as the most famous and most popular car in American automobile history. As individuals, Edison, Ford, and Firestone created the means for the great multitudes to enjoy leisure entertainment far beyond what was previously imagined. As the Vagabonds, their summer car and camping trips exemplified what they had helped make possible. See what we're doing? You can do it too. By their example, the Vagabonds encouraged countless ordinary Americans to pursue their own dreams. And that is where I'll leave it. To get the full story, read the book. If you buy the book using the link that's in the show notes in your podcast player, you'll be supporting the podcast at the same time. That is 190 books down, 1,000 to go. And I'll talk to you again soon. Okay, so I just have two quick things I want to update you on. The first is that I'm now offering a lifetime plan. I started doing this just as an experiment uh, for new subscribers, but I also don't think it's right when companies offer better deals to new customers than already existing ones. So you don't have to do anything. You can stay on the plan you're on if you prefer. Um, But if you want to switch over and to a pay one time have lifetime access plan. Um, I will leave a link in the show notes. And you can do that this now here's the problem. They're all separate systems. So this process is a little bit janky. But you would sign up for the new lifetime plan, right? And then you'd have to cancel log in and cancel your other one. I don't have a way, unfortunately, to do it automatically. or Also, I would definitely do that for you. Uh, if you want to stay on the whatever plan you're on now, you don't have to change anything. So far, the response to the new lifetime plan has been so good that I think I might have stumbled on something here. I don't know if it's a sustainable, viable way to to do to make sure I can do founders for the rest of my life. I would very much like to get to a thousand books, if not more. And that would take obviously a very long time. Um, but I do get suspicious when everybody says that you can't do this, that you have to do subscription, or that you have to do ads, or you have to have reoccurring. I'm not sure about all that. And the people that say that could be right, or they could just be repeating something they heard and didn't actually investigate for themselves. So I think the one way to figure this out is, let me see if there's another alternative here. And I like the simplicity of, hey, pay one time, have access forever, turns founders more into like a tool, into a a reference. And that's really the way I think about it. I told you before, I don't really think of this as a show at all. I think there's a lot of great ideas in these books. And just like when you buy a book, you can constantly reread it. Well, if you have a lifetime access to founders, you can re-listen to episodes as much as you want but I do have a lot of uncertainty around this. I'm not sure if this is the, the right move. So I'll leave the link there. It's there if you want to do it. If not, don't worry about it. And then the second thing, um, and I'll obviously tell you if my if I discover something new or if my I, thinking on this evolves, maybe this is you know the permanent default moving forward. I have no idea yet. Um, but I am excited so far from the, the, the limited tests that I have done. And then the second thing is uh, just in terms of, I want to update you on show notes. And that Ties into this whole idea of using, thinking founders just like a reference, just like a book or an audio book or anything else. Um, instead of just putting the show notes, like my highlights, in, or some of my highlights into uh, like the actual show notes so you can only read my on podcast player, I'm actually just going to uh, link to my personal website that has the show notes for whatever particular book and most of that what I mean by show notes is most of it is just highlights from the book and what I do is I go back I use this app called Readwise which is fantastic in fact one of the founders is a misfit and listens to this podcast but what it does is it helps you remember the stuff that you read and so you whether you want to get the daily email that sends you like 10 or 15 different Uh, highlights or what i use it for is primarily a a gigantic uh, database that i can search and constantly remind myself of you know i have tens of thousands of highlights in there from hundreds of books and so what i want to do is if you let's say you listen to the podcast episodes really interesting and you want to remind yourself of this you can grab it's just a webpage you can grab it uh the link that i leave in the show notes and it'll have maybe you know sometimes it's 10 highlights sometimes it's 20 sometimes it's 60. And that way you can read over them in the future and kind of remind yourself what, what are some of the key lessons that you learned uh, from that book or from that podcast. And then on that page, on every webpage, you'll see if you want to get on my personal email list. Um, I think what I'm going to do is just as I do new highlights for every new book, uh, I can just email those to you so you have, you have them as well. And again, that's optional. So that's it. I just want to let you know there's a new lifetime plan if you want to take up, op- uh, if you want to take advantage of that. And then, if you want to review a lot of the lessons that we're learning on the podcast, there's a new way to do that as well. Thank you very much for your support, as always, and thank you very much for listening. And I'll talk to you again soon.